Brad and Rex, I have a handout for this morning's message. If you didn't get one, would you please raise your hand? They're on the podium in the back. They've all been passed out. So there aren't any more. If they don't have one, it's too late. Okay. All right. So that's fixed, or at least fixed as much as we can. I want you to listen to the following passages, and I have a biblical principle which I want to extract from them. John 15, 15. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Ephesians 6, 21. But that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. Ephesians 6.22, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us, and that he may comfort your hearts. Colossians 4.8, for I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, and he may encourage your hearts. Now, the biblical principle that I want you to see here, and this really a kind of a couplet principle, if you, is that if you love someone, then you're concerned for them, and you want to know what and how they are doing. Nothing complicated about that. And these passages assume that such love will be eager to have such knowledge. It's a natural outworking of love to want to be reassured about the well-being of someone you love and to know more about what they are doing. But there's the reverse of that. And if you, it's, it's, it's this. If you love someone, then you will want to know what is going, you will want them to know what is going on with you. And so there are two things. Love means you want to know about them, and love also means you, they, you want them to know about you. And that's not always selfish. Yes, there are people that all they can do is talk about themselves. But, and we know such people. But the fact is that these passages tell us that love means that we want to communicate ourselves and what we're doing to the people that we love. What's that got to do with anything? Well, I hope that you love me and you want to know what I am doing. <laughs> I love you and want you to know what I am doing, and I want to know what you are doing as well. And the message I am preaching this morning grows out of these principles of love. I looked over a file that I have on my computer this week, which keeps a record of all the places I have gone in the last several years or will be going elsewhere preaching. And it was not surprising to me how often I have gone someplace else and taught on the doctrine of last things. But it is surprising to me to know how few times I've taught anything about that in this church and on this subject. That's what I was doing last Lord's Day in Rhode Island. I was preaching on the subject of the doctrine of last things. And it is the impulse of love which makes me want you to know what I teach on this subject. And it seems like what I teach every place else but here. Uh, and so I want to teach on the subject of last things this morning. But before we come to that very important subject, let's pray together. By your birth, your cross, your passion, by your tears of deep compassion, by your mighty intercession, Lord and Savior, help us.
If you were to judge from Christian bookstores, TV Bible teachers, the Left Behind movies, and popular Christian writing, you would think that the secret rapture and the pre-tribulational coming of Christ were taught plainly and everywhere in Scripture. Here is the fact. Not only is there no clear support for such a doctrine in the Bible, but the most explicit and clear passage on the subject seems to contradict it. And I want to preach on that passage this morning, and I will leave you to judge if what I am saying is correct. Please turn in your Bibles to that passage. It is 2 Thessalonians 2, and I want you to follow as I read verses 1 to 12. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth, so as to be saved." For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Now, my goal is simply to work through this passage by way of a verse-by-verse exposition and exhibit its clear teaching on the subject of the tribulation and second coming. It has three sections of thought, which we will look at in order, and here they are. There is the familiar subject, the threatening deception, and the apostolic teaching. First of all, then, the familiar subject. 2 Thessalonians 2.1 makes the subject which Paul wishes to address very clear. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. It is very important that you understand that Paul takes up a subject here about which he had already written the Thessalonian church. I refer, of course, to the well-known passage in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and following his first epistle to this very church. It's quite important to understand uh, this passage, and a right understanding of this passage requires that you understand that Paul is here addressing the very same subjects and events he has dealt with there. Let me mention several things that confirm the identity of the subjects addressed here with the subjects addressed there. Paul uses the same peculiar word for Christ's coming here as he used in 1 Thessalonians 4.15. It is the word parousia which refers to Christ's coming as his arrival. 
1 Thessalonians 4.15 uses this word when it says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The coming of the Lord is there, the parousia of the Lord. But there's also this. Paul couples the same event with the parousia that he couples with it in 1 Thessalonians 4. He speaks both here and there of the gathering of Christ's people to him at his parousia. The gathering and the coming are inseparably linked. The gathering takes place at the coming. You can see that. And this is what is said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. The gathering is also coupled with the coming there. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, Then there's the gathering, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So Paul couples the same event with the parousia as he does in 1 Thessalonians 4. And then also Paul identifies these two events closely by the grammatical construction he uses in in 2 Thessalonians 2.1. He speaks of... The coming and gathering. He does not speak of the coming and the gathering, but of the coming and gathering. And the fact that he does not repeat the article, sorry for throwing the Greek at you here, but the fact that he does not repeat the article means that the two things are closely identified in his mind. And this close identification of the two things is natural given what we've already seen and what he's already said in his first epistle to this very church in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. And as we move on into the passage, the fact that the coming and gathering are inseparably related will become very important. But then, when Paul speaks of the day of the Lord, there in verse 2, you see it, He is referring to the familiar subject he has just identified in verse 1. The day of the Lord is the coming and gathering. And you would conclude that by any natural reading of the passage. The day of the Lord in verse 2 is clearly the same thing as the coming and gathering in verse 1. Interestingly, though, Paul transitions from the coming and gathering to the day of the Lord here in exactly the same way he does in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. Look at that passage with me. Now I think it's good for you to turn back to it. Because you don't see my point unless I get to read it straight through for you. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15, we've read already. That's about uh, the fact that by the word of the Lord, he's saying that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Well, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, let me remind you here that the chapter divisions in our Bibles are not inspired And so these words follow immediately on the teaching about the coming of Christ in the preceding verses. Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well 
that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now, it's clear here as well that the day of the Lord is the same thing as the coming and gathering that Paul has been speaking about. The contextual flow from 1 Thessalonians 4 into 1 Thessalonians 5 makes that clear, as, it does, as does the flow in 2 Thessalonians 2. And then there's the fivefold use of the Lord, the word the Lord, with regard to the coming of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 18. It prepares the way for the phrase, the day of the Lord, in 1 Thessalonians 5. Same transition takes place in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2. The coming of our Lord in verse 1 is called the day of the Lord in verse 2. And then I want you to notice this as well. There's the use of the definite article, the, in the phrase, the times and the epics. Now as to the times and the epics, what times and epics? What's he talking about? Well, this is what you can read about in the Greek grammars, but it's called the article of previous reference. We do this all the time when we talk to each other. The the, the, the means that it's, he's talking about something he's already been referring to. So when he says the times and the epics in 1 Thessalonians 5.1, what's he talking about? The times and the epics of the coming of the Lord, obviously and clearly. And then you'll notice that he talks about the day of the Lord being as a thief in the night. Oh, where do you have that language of the thief in the night elsewhere in the New Testament? You have it in Matthew 24, and it refers to the second coming of Christ. The day of the Lord is the coming and gathering. What does this mean? Why is it important? Well, because the prevailing view of eschatology called dispensationalism in our day uh, says that the day of the Lord is something quite different than the coming of the Lord. And that's why I've made such a point of this. The point in seeing that they're the same thing is important practically. The fact that the day of the Lord does not come unless certain things happen first means that certain things must happen before the coming and gathering mentioned in verse 1. Well, why does Paul now have to address this familiar subject again? Why is he beating this dead horse, as we say? Well, that brings us uh, to, in the second place, place, the threatening deception. The threatening deception. Look at verses 2 and 3. That you you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you. Now, if you're going to understand why Paul is doing this here, you have to understand that the faith of the church in Thessalonica was very immature. Now, it's likely that Paul's ministry in Thessalonica lasted longer than the three Sabbath days, which Luke explicitly mentions in the book of Acts. But nevertheless, a number of factors make it clear that Paul's ministry in Thessalonica was cut short, and he had to leave that city long before he felt the new church was well established. In Acts 17.10, he speaks of the hasty 
the, I'm sorry, Luke speaks of the hasty and secret departure which was forced upon him by the persecution of the Jews. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. There was this hasty and secret departure from Thessalonica. And because of his forced and premature departure, Paul felt considerable anxiety for the church in Thessalonica. Paul speaks plainly of his anxiety for them in 1 Thessalonians 3.1. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. The consequence was that he sent Timothy to find out how they were doing. And then Paul feels the necessity, and this is his exact language in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, of telling the Thessalonian church that they must not grieve as those who have no hope. Well, how could a Christian ever grieve as the rest who have no hope? How could that be? Only because their faith, on Paul's opinion, was very unformed and immature. Now, therefore, even though he had written them with clear teaching in 1 Thessalonians, their immature faith was being undermined once more with false teaching. Paul does not seem sure of the exact source of this false teaching, and he mentions several possibilities in verse 2. He was not sure whether it was by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. And so you see, it could be by a spirit, which I think refers to a supposed prophecy. It could be a message possibly refers to some rumored or reported verbal instruction of the apostle. The term letter clearly refers to a forged letter as if from Paul. The point is that whatever of these it was, or even whether it were all of these, what was conveyed was false and did not represent the views of the apostle. And now you see how bad the situation was in his eyes. Here's this immature church that he'd not been able to fully instruct, and now they're being subjected to the onslaught of false rumors about his teaching. But what was the false teaching that the infant church was threatened with in Thessalonica? Well, Paul tells us exactly what it was. It was the report that the day of the Lord had come. But here's my question. What could such a teaching have meant? This requires a careful answer and some careful thinking. And so think about several things. The day of the Lord, as we have seen, clearly refers here to the parousia and gathering of Christ's people to him at that event. I've emphasized this already. It's perfectly clear. It's what the context demands we understand the day of the Lord to mean. And Paul says that the day, that the day of the Lord literally has set in. This is not just a past tense, it's a perfect tense. It's come and is now here. And thus it may be translated, the day of the Lord has become and is now present. Or it may be translated, the day of the Lord stands present. Now can you see the problem? If you're thinking with me, you see it. And actually, there are a couple of different problems here. First problem, Paul can scarcely mean to imply, and it seems really unlikely, 
that the false teachers were saying that the second coming, resurrection, and rapture were already happening. No Christian would believe that, not even the immature Christians in Thessalonica, I think. That falsehood was too obvious to have any credibility. Paul must mean something like that the false teachers were saying that these things were impending or imminent. But that brings us to a second problem. Paul himself at times taught that the coming of the Lord was near and in this sense imminent. There is a sense in which the coming of the Lord was imminent. But here Paul is saying that it is not imminent. How are we to put these two things together? Is it imminent, Paul, or not? Has the day of the Lord, is the day of the Lord near, or is it not? How are we to put these two things together? I think that Paul must mean to contradict the false teachers by saying that the day of the Lord was not imminent in such a way as to be in the immediate future. Uh, Can I put it this way? We must distinguish in our minds, we must distinguish in our minds between the day of the Lord being imminent and the day of the Lord being immediately imminent. The day of the Lord was not imminent in such a way as to warrant Christians giving up their day jobs. Oh, come on, you say, no one would ever do that. Except the God we had the discipline in Grand Rapids for doing exactly that under the preaching of Mr. Camping. He did exactly that. And we know that the Thessalonians were doing that too. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 to 15, tells us that they were not working at all, sponging off their brethren. And why? Well, the connection with chapter 2 is too immediate to ignore. They were doing this because they thought the second coming of Christ was immediately imminent. They were waiting for the day of the Lord, which they caught could be any day now. Nothing intervened and no prophesied event need occur first between the present day and the day of the Lord. That's what they thought and that's what they were acting on. And Paul is now going to say to them that they are wrong and that this false teaching is wrong. He's going to contradict it and say exactly the opposite. Which brings us to the apostolic teaching. The apostolic teaching regarding the coming of Christ and our gathering to him. There are several components in the teaching Paul gives to remedy this false doctrine of the immediate imminence of Christ's return. He's going to speak of what must happen first, what prevents this now, and what will happen then. All right? What what must happen first? What prevents this now? What will happen then? What must happen first? Paul teaches explicitly that there are some things that must happen before Christ comes back. (laughs) Now, if you're listening and you're thinking, I just contradicted what some of you have been taught all your lives. But Paul says exactly the opposite. He does not say that no prophesied event intervenes between us and the second coming of Christ. He says that there are at least two. He says that the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son 
of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Paul here reminds the Thessalonians of something that he actually had touched on and even his short ministry there. Notice verse 5 where he says that he had taught them this. He had said that certain events were appointed and predicted to precede the day of the Lord. And there were two such events, and they were closely related. The first was the apostasy. The Greek dictionary defines this word as a condition resulting from changing loyalties, revolt, desertion. As a religious technical term, apostasy, rebellion, defection, abandonment. The word probably refers here to religious apostasy, but may also connote rebellion against the true God because of a changing loyalty toward him. Now, though apostasy takes place all the time, we see so many Evidences of that and what's called the deconstruction of a lot of people's Christianity, famous Christians in our day. But though apostasy takes place all the time, this apostasy from the true religion and the true God would be so widespread that it would be clearly seen and identified by genuine Christians. It's a global apostasy. But the second and closely related event was the revelation of the man of lawlessness. This is the person commonly known as the Antichrist in popular prophecy. Yes, this language, in my opinion, most naturally means that he is an individual person and not some sort of movement or institution. The mystery of lawlessness may be such a movement, but it produces an individual who leads in the apostasy from God and the holy religion. He is apparently at the center of the great apostasy and leads it. And Hendrickson is right when he says he is not an abstract power or a collective concept, but definitely an eschatological person. That's William Hendrickson. Paul also tells us that he claims for himself divine honors. He claims to be a god. Thus, he calls men to worship him and forsake the true god. I think it's likely that the language of his taking his seat in the temple of God is not to be taken with a literalism or a crass literalism, nor does it refer to the church, as some people think. It just means that he claims the worship given to any god men worship in whatever temple they worship him. But let me now focus your attention on the most important things that Paul assumes in these verses about what must happen first. He assumes, does he not, that the apostasy and the revelation of the man of lawlessness are obvious events. He assumes that they'll see them when they happen. He assumes that the Thessalonians know that they have not happened yet, because when they do happen, they'll see them. He assumes that they will know when they do happen. He tells them that until they do happen, they must not think that Christ's coming and our gathering to him are immediately imminent. He directly implies that when they do happen, that when they do happen, the coming of Christ will be 
in the immediate future. He implies all of those things straightforwardly, I think. But that brings us to the second point of the apostolic teaching. What prevents this now? What what prevents this now? Verses 6 and 7 read as follows. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now what's funny about this is that Paul says that the Thessalonians knew what restrains him. Well, the Thessalonians may have known what restrains him, but no commentator since then has been sure about it. The rest of us don't know, at least not with the same certainty apparently that the Thessalonians do. So most Christian commentators have been trying to figure out what the Thessalonians do ever since Paul wrote these words. And there are many different views of who this restrainer is. If you want to ask about other views, we can talk about them later. But my view, just so you know, is that the restraint is angelic power and the restrainer is a mighty angel. I think, I'm not going to go into this, but if you go read Daniel chapter 10, if you go read Revelation 20, you'll see that angels restrain demonic power. And it makes sense to me because that fallen angels, like Satan, who is behind the mystery of iniquity, would be restrained by unfallen angels. That just seems to be a natural analogy or parody. But to me, the most important thing to realize is that there is a restrainer, and a restraint upon the mystery of lawlessness throughout this age. This restraint lasts till the very end of the age, or just before the end of the age. And you should carefully notice that there are three consecutive events laid out in this passage. There is, one, the time of restraining. Two, there is the removal of restraint and the coming of apostasy, man of lawlessness, time of delusion. And then three, after a short time, there is the destruction of the Antichrist and his followers. Those three things happen in order clearly in our passage. It's not disputable. That's the order. Time of restraining, removal of restraint, after a short time, the destruction of the Antichrist and his followers. Now, That, that, that same series of events, this is for you eschatology buffs out there. This is free. That same series of events takes place in Revelation 20. There is the restraining of Satan by his being cast into the abyss. There is the short time of trouble in which he is released. And then there is the destruction of Satan by fire from heaven. It's the same sequence of events in Revelation 20 as you have here. That is very significant. But that brings me to the third part of the apostolic teaching. What will happen then? What will happen then? Verses 8 to 12 describe what happens at the end of the gospel age when the restrainer is removed. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, 
and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. These are scary words. During those terrible last days of this age, three things will happen. The lawless one will be revealed. This is a reference to the personal Antichrist or man of lawlessness mentioned in verse 3. Second, the world will be subjected to a tremendous deluding activity by Satan. False miracles, deceptive signs will be given to support the claims of the Antichrist. Satan, however, is the unwilling agent in God's hand to judge a world which has rejected the truth by causing them to believe a lie. They believe a lie because in the first place they did not receive the love of the truth. You sit out there this morning rejecting the truth. You are setting yourself up to believe a lie. That's the teaching of the passage. And it should scare the socks off you. But then the third thing is, after this, which is the apostasy of which Paul has spoken there in the early part of the passage, the third thing is the Lord will return in glory. During the lifetime of that Antichrist who was revealed, the Lord will return in glory. The word used is parousia, the very word used in verse 1 and back there in 1 Thessalonians 4. Apparently the seeming triumph of the Antichrist will be only a short time. Then the supernatural judgment of the Lord will fall on him and the world following, and they will be totally destroyed. And the church of Christ will be saved. Well, what are some practical and doctrinal observations that we can make about the teaching of this passage about prophecy or last things? We are right in the middle of it, aren't we? This is not something for somebody else. This is something exactly for us, dear brothers and sisters. When I was raised, I was always taught a view of prophecy that said all the great things happened after the secret rapture, and we were all in heaven anyway. So I wonder why it was so exciting to everybody to talk about that. But the fact of the matter is, this is not something that happens after us. It is something that happens to us. First, we must distinguish a true and false doctrine of imminence according to this passage. We must distinguish between a true and false doctrine of imminence according to this passage. Paul's warning in this passage that the day of the Lord is not immediately imminent, that two things have to happen first, is a straightforward rebuke of a false doctrine of imminence that is widespread among Christians today. And this false doctrine of imminence is that no prophesied event remains before Christ's pre-tribulational coming and that Christ may come at any moment. The notion that Christ may come at any moment is simply not biblical. It is taught nowhere in the Word of God. I know you've been taught that as the most basic teaching of, of Christianity. 
since the time you were little, perhaps. But it's simply not true. Paul here teaches clearly that the apostasy and the revelation of the man of sin must happen first. What you have to realize, some of you know enough to know that the idea of a secret rapture and a pre-tribulational coming of Christ really doesn't make sense, but you know that if they're right about their doctrine of imminence, then they're right about pre-tribulationism. It follows immediately and necessarily if you let them say that Christ can come at any moment. Because then the the coming must be pre-tribulational because there is a tribulation and other stuff that happens before the second coming we're talking about here in 2 Thessalonians 2. Now, this false doctrine is based on false deductions from the commands of the Bible to be alert to and watch for Christ's coming. Of course we must stay alert. Of course we must stay awake and watch for Christ's second coming. But such watchfulness does not imply that Christ's coming may be at any moment. I have a friend. Some of you would know his name, but I won't say it here. He was ministering in a foreign country. When he came to the end of that ministry, he was eager to go home and see his wife and family, of course. He knew that his plane left early in the morning at certain stated time. But he was so concerned not to oversleep and miss his plane that he stayed awake all night. (laughs) Now the question is this. Did he stay awake because he thought his plane could leave at any time? At any moment? No. He stayed awake because he's afraid he might go to sleep and oversleep and miss his plane. Similarly, the commands of the Bible to stay awake and stay alert do not mean that Christ could come at any moment. They mean that if we fall asleep, we might not be ready. And so we have to stay awake. The delicate thing about all of this, of course, as I have been implying, is that there is a biblical doctrine of the imminence of Christ's coming. In dozens of places, Paul teaches that Christ's coming is near. That Christ's coming is near. The New Testament in many places teaches that Christ's coming is near and is drawing nearer. But of course, something may be near and yet not be ready to occur at any moment. We are told in the Gospels that the Feast of the Jews were near. But they fell on certain specific dates, and so they could not occur at any moment. The point is this. There is a true doctrine of the imminence of Christ's coming and staying awake and being alert for it, and there is a false doctrine of the imminence of Christ's coming. The true doctrine of imminence defines it as nearness. The false doctrine of imminence defines it as any momentness. Our passage shows you that Christ's coming is not imminent in the sense of any momentness. Paul explicitly says that there are certain prophesied events that must happen first. Now, you say, but why? I've always been taught this imminence is... You know, you know the strange thing here? Imminence is not a biblical word. Well, okay. It's used once in the New American Standard Bible. You know what it's used of? And we are told that Peter knew that his departure from this life was near, was imminent. It's translated by the New American Standard. It was sure to happen because he was an old man and he was being about to be martyred, sure to happen in the next few days or months. Peter's death was immediately imminent. 
But that term and that idea is never applied to the second coming of Christ. The parousia of Christ is not imminent in that way. And that is what Paul is saying in 2 Thessalonians 2, and he's saying it very clearly. And so, in the second place, we say, we must reject the unbiblical doctrine of pre-tribulationism. This is the doctrine that the secret rapture or coming of Christ before the tribulation. This is one of the main pillars of pre-tribulationism, and it is unbiblical. The fact is that there's no passage in the Bible that teaches the pre-tribulational coming of Christ. And I don't know if this is going to be helpful to you or not, but let me just recite some of the, the facts of the matter. Besides 2 Thessalonians 2, which seems clear enough, in Matthew 24 there's the tribulation and the second coming. Guess, guess which comes first? The tribulation, whatever it is. In Matthew 24 it comes before the second coming. In the book of Revelation... There is no coming of Christ until after the breaking of the seals, the blowing of the trumpets, and the pouring out of the bowls of the plagues. And if these things depict the great tribulation, as many prophecy teachers think, then the coming of Christ depicted in Revelation 19 after all of those things is not pre-tribulational, but post-tribulational. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, the second coming of Christ, the rapture of the living saints, and the resurrection of the dead saints brings sudden destruction on the wicked. According to 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. The second coming of Christ does not bring a seven-year tribulation in which hundreds of thousands of people are saved. It brings sudden destruction on the wicked. And in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 10, well, let's just look at that passage for fun. Thessalonians 1, verses 5 to 10, you have the same thing. Paul speaks of the second coming here. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with, the mighty, with his mighty angels and flaming fire. Okay, so that's the event. Is that a secret rapture? no. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. What also happens when that, when that occurs? When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believe, for a testimony to you was believed. You see, the second coming of Christ brings both sudden destruction to the wicked and the relief and rescue of the saints. This is not the common prophetic view in our day, but this is what Paul teaches. Well, <clears throat> simply put, the Bible everywhere teaches the very same post-tribulationism which we find in 2 Thessalonians 2. 
It nowhere teaches pre-tribulationism. And so we say in the third place, we must refuse the false hope that the church will not go through the tribulation. How can I say this to you? The whole idea that the church would not go through the tribulation, okay, so maybe it's attractive to our flesh, but to anyone who knows the Bible, the idea that Christians will not go through the tribulation ought to be just slightly ridiculous. In the world, Jesus said, you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You became imitators in us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I, John, your brother and fellow taker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Come on, folks. The Bible never promises you a Christian life without trouble. Where in the world did this idea come from? And why is it so attractive? To the, and why does it seem so right that Christians shouldn't go through the tribulation? Of course Christians go through tribulation all the time and at the end even more. This, this idea seems to me to be a part of a whole system of easy Christianity. Easy believism. Faith for a moment brings life for eternity. The notion that you can make a one-time decision for Christ, which assures you from heaven of heaven no matter what you do later. The idea that Christians are eternally secure and will go to heaven regardless of whether they persevere. The doctrine of the carnal Christian. Other such doctrines lead directly to the idea that Christians, well, they don't have to suffer tribulation. But all these things are part and parcel of an easy Christianity which infects the church today. And this this idea that the church will not go through the tribulation simply fits right into it. But easy Christianity, brothers and sisters, is not biblical Christianity. The Bible never promised a salvation which delivers us from tribulation in this age. Well, <clears throat> other, th- other applications could be made. Let me come to this one. We must accept the truth, then, of a short time of global tribulation for the church and of a personal antichrist emerging at the end of the gospel age. <clears throat> when we compare 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 20, it becomes clear that there is a short period of concentrated, global, and terrible tribulation for the church at the end of the age. That's what's clear. I think other passages suggest this truth as well, but these are two clear examples. And they make the matter clear enough. Revelation 20, verse 3, speaks of a short time of Satan's loosing following the thousand years in which Satan was bound. 2 Thessalonians 2 speaks of a period of apostasy and delusion following the time of the restraint of the mystery of lawlessness. And this is brought to an end by the parousia of Christ. Now, when I say that there's going to be a tribulation and a personal antichrist, don't don't paint me with all the stuff in the Left Behind movies. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying it's seven years. I'm not saying there's a time of terrible world calamity. I'm not saying any of that stuff. All I'm saying is a time of tribulation for the church. And I'm saying there's a personal antichrist that leads it. That's all I'm saying. 
So, I'm not affirming all the mythology developed by dispensationalism about the Antichrist. I'm not endorsing all the fallacies of the left-behind movies. I'm only saying that there will be a personal Antichrist who leads the attack on the Church of Christ at the end of the age. That's a fact that I wish wasn't in the Bible. That's a teaching which I wish wasn't in the Bible, but it's in the Bible, and I have to believe it, and so do you. But there's a happy implication in all of this, a happier implication. In this passage, you see it with me? There's the implication of the worldwide spread of the gospel through the building of the church in this age. That's the implication of both 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 20 that's often overlooked. If there is an apostasy after a long period of restraint, and if there is a thousand years in which Satan is bound, the necessary implication is that the gospel does spread successfully throughout the world. How could there be a worldwide apostasy if there wasn't a worldwide Christianity? How could there be worldwide apostasy if the truth was not a first accepted worldwide? How could there be a rebellion if the rule of Christ was not first accepted? Often when the end times are taught today, a terrible pessimism about the church is encouraged. If the age will end with the tribulation and the man of sin, then all is doom and gloom and let's hide in our basements. Then the conclusion would seem to be that things will only get worse and worse until the end. Evil men will become worse and worse. That's true. But it does not contradict another truth, brothers and sisters. Good will grow. The church will become worldwide. Christianity will be global. There will be truth throughout every land. No, it will not be triumphant and free from trouble but there will be truth throughout every land and the church will be built across the world. Now that's a prospect that ought to encourage us. That's a prospect that ought to make us work our butts off to see this church grow and other churches planted and missions pursued, right? The gospel will be preached. The church will be built across the world. Yes, there will come a time of tribulation and a terrible global... The terrible Antichrist, but his time will be short and our glory will be eternal. Now, I don't know if I'll preach this message next week or not, but you remember the parable of the tares, the parable of the wheat and weeds? I think it contains the true picture of what will happen in this age. What we must look for is epitomized in the words of Jesus in Matthew 13, 30. Allow both good and evil to grow together until the harvest. Some people think, oh, evil's growing, the good's going to wither, and it'll all, all be bad, 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 bad. Some people think good's going to grow, it's going to destroy the evil. There'll be thousands of years of, of triumph of righteousness and the prosperity in the world. Jesus doesn't teach either thing. Both will grow together. You may think, if one grows, the other can't grow. Yeah, that's human logic, but it's not what Jesus says. Both will grow together until the harvest. Evil will grow. 
evil will grow. You know why evil will grow? Because the more good that evil sees, the worse it gets. Last Sunday, I was talking to some of the children who were in the church about this, this deep logic of what Jesus teaches here, that both will grow together. You know who the worst enemies of Christianity will be? Some of you children. If you don't accept Christ. Because you've had so much good, and if, if light doesn't make you better, it will make you worse. And the people that will be the worst people are the people that had the most light and rejected it. You know who some of these people leading this worldwide apostasy will be? Could be you. Is that what you want? It will be what you get if you don't receive the truth in the love of it. Love the truth. Be delivered from these lies that are dominating our world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the great truth that those who suffer will reign with you. We thank you for the great truth that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We thank you for the great truth that the time of evil is coming to an end and the day is coming in this world, in this world, in this earth, when we will look for the wicked and not find them. We thank you for your mercies and grace. We pray your blessing and your prosperity upon this preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.